You're listening to the Law and Business Podcast, hosted by Anthony Verna. We tackle the difficult questions where business and the law intersect to help you run a smarter business and avoid costly mistakes. Brought to you by Verna Law PC, a full-service law firm focusing on patents, trademarks, copyrights, domain names, and advertising law. For more information, call 914-908-6757 or send an email to anthony at vernalaw.com for more information. All right. Welcome back to the Law and Business Podcast and welcome back, Jim Cushing. How are you doing, sir? How are you doing, Anthony? Thanks for having me back. Hey, I I know it's been a while, but uh, the podcast is you know, a little intermittent on my end, <laughs> a little more intermittent than I would like. So thank you so much for, for, for being back. Um, recently, I had, uh, I had a, 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 an appearance in a federal court in the beautiful city of Binghamton, New York, where uh, they're so used to intellectual property lawsuits uh, <laughs> and to, to the point that the magistrate judge was asking me about, about a provision in the Lanham Act that is little used and the look and shock and horror in his face was something I don't think I've ever seen before. Um, but in this particular... It's partic- never good when you're teaching the judge the law. <laughs> no, that's Honestly. true. But I think that happens a little more for me than, than for you, which led to this magistrate saying, okay, this is a trademark and copyright infringement case it's something that ob- that that he was fully admitting that he was not used to but that there are two magistrates in the northern district of new york that have uh, intellectual property expertise and experience and and wondering if the parties would want to have one of those magistrates hold a a settlement conference and um, in this particular case my client was all for it because we're dealing with a, a pro se litigant. So a litigant who's representing himself. Right. And it's, um, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, a pro se litigant can be a little on the extreme side. <laughs> well, you know, they go into it thinking this is going to be my day in court and I'm going to go all the way and they don't really understand the process <laughs> or where they've got a weakness. Exactly. So, so I think this was a smart time that um, that a judge is forcing us into settlement. And of course, since then, I think the the litigant has realized that yes, he's not going to be going all the way, and he's not going to be really getting his day in court. And so, he's actually sent me a couple different settlement um, um, options since then. So, um, so, so have there been times when a judge has forced you? someone who's in family law uh, into settlements that you think are good and, and, and help the case rather than dealing with litigation. You know what? I, I think that, um, I'm a, as I said, I'm, I'm a family attorney, or you said, I'm a family attorney mostly. And, you know, I think family is kind of unique in the legal field uh, because it really, a, a lot of the times the object of a family case is someone who's not even in court, you know, your, your son or your daughter or whomever, and, uh, and obviously not in divorce, but in the in the custody or support context. Sure. So you're dealing with somebody who's not present, who's the object of the case. It's not just money or like, a, not, no offense to your practice, but like a copyright. It's a real human being who's, um, whose life is going to be affected. And um, when it comes down to it, we're trying to do what's best for that person. And sometimes what's best for that person is not necessarily some legal one-upsmanships, um, it's, it's just a practical consideration. And, you know, when you have a decent judge, they look at this and they see the legal arguments from both sides, but they're also, if they're worth their salt, they see a, a kid involved or a couple of kids involved that, that whose lives will be affected. And they, he thinks the judge may think, you know what, 
I think I think we need to get this thing settled because having warring parents for a number of indefinitely is not good for anybody. And so he gets involved or she gets involved and says, you know, maybe we should sit down and and figure this out. And they make they they sort of make the procedures in a way that the trial procedure in a way that sort of fosters, I don't want to say compels, but fosters that kind of resolution over a trial, for example. And I can give you an example. Please. If I could, is um, I had a judge, I won't mention his name, he's retired now, unfortunately, but I had a judge for many years in Philadelphia Family Court who had a reputation for holding perpetual conferences. What's so, a perpetual conference? So I don't mean in like, like or per, conferences perpetually, I should say. Gotcha. So for example, <laughs> for example, he'll have like, you know, the, the court will schedule a trial date for X day. The parties appear and the judge will say, um, you know what, I'd like to have everyone come into the, con to the chambers to have a conference about how the trial will go. And that's where he will sit down and say, what are you doing here? And why are you doing this? And just give me an idea of what you're going to argue. And so we, we would. And he'll say, I, I don't think this is worthy of a trial. I think you need to figure this out. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to reschedule our trial for 60 days from now. I want you to address these problems and let me know how you did it. And then we'll come back and conference again. And, and, and even though we had trial dates, it was very difficult to get actually into trial because he would say, well, we need to talk about this. You need to figure this out. Come back in 30 days or whatever it is. And, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to say to a judge, stonewall a judge and say, no, I'm not going to talk about that because you don't want to be that guy. And I think it benefited the clients ultimately, even though they got frustrated because they never really got in front of a judge to badmouth the other person, which is really his goal, right? He didn't want the two parents coming in and, and like being attacking each other. And I think it, he was sort of forcing people to figure it out, which is what you need to do in custody. Ultimately. And, and, and I think, and I think that's what's, that's what makes family law unique is the uh, emotions that, um, that, that sadly come out of divorce that sadly come out of uh, custodial disputes. And yeah. And, and, and I think it's up to a judge to, to truly keep those emotions in check. Yeah, I mean, what I will say is, at least in the context of family, I always tell my clients this, that, you know, when your kids are two or three or four or five or young, whatever it is, the reality of it is you are setting the tone for mom and dad are, setting the tone for themselves for not just the next custody order, but until this kid is 18 or an adult. I mean, I say to them, you know, you're, if you're going to poison the well when your son or daughter's five, how are you two going to go to his graduation when he's 18 and be in the same room together when he's married and all that sort of thing? Right. And you're burdening him. So, so it's better for people to sort of figure it out. You know, you're going to have to live with this person forever, even though they're in your same house. You know, they got to deal with this person forever. So I think it's been, I think the way judge, the judge handles that is, is, is really critical. One of the, the issues that I think that makes intellectual property unique, and, and, and I kind of hinted at this in the intro, is that I think a lot of judges, well, one, I think a lot of attorneys don't know what intellectual property is to begin with. And, and therefore, when, they, when attorneys become federal judges, if they are prosecutors all the time and, and maybe not familiar with the civil side or whatever the case might be, they just uh, aren't familiar with IP law in, in general sitting on the federal bench. And, and sometimes, yes, I have to, I have to educate. Uh, but, but family law judges tend to be family law 
experts because this is all they see. They do. As, as the state, you know, whether regardless of all this, you know, I'm licensed in New York, New Jersey, family law is its own court there. And, and certainly in Pennsylvania, family law is in its own court as well. Yeah, I mean, in the bigger jurisdictions, like I practice in Philadelphia uh, mainly, in the bigger jurisdictions, there is a, fa- a segregated family court, where, and that's what those judges do day in and day out. When you go into the more of the more sparsely area, areas, like Center County, for example, Center County, Pennsylvania, which has four judges for everything, that's a little bit different. Do you, do you ever find yourself struggling with um, struggling with a judge in, in terms of education of a case or in terms of of how a judge would like you to settle? Yeah, that, you know, I have found that. In, yeah, I have found in the in the smaller counties, uh, and that would by smaller I mean places outside the Philadelphia five county metro area. You know, where the where the judges become more jacks of all trades than specific. Um, they either treat a family case like a regular civil litigation case, which it's not, right? I mean, you, you, it's one thing. If, if you blow a deadline in a civil litigation case, you might lose, right? But no one ever loses a custody case, right? You're, or a divorce case or whatever. Sure. You have to, or a support case. And so, I mean, they, in that way at least, right? So they treat it with like that. And then that becomes very frustrating. Well, and, and I would assume that, that there are different rules of procedure for, for a Pennsylvania family case, just like in New York and, and New yes. Jersey. There are, there are, but then, or they treat it like, like there are no rules. <laughs> and, and 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 that gets frustrating too. So, I mean, family law is sort of in between, as it were. I mean, I, I sometimes joke that family law sometimes devolves into you know whoever gets their shoulders on the mat first. But it's not. But it really shouldn't be that way. And the judges shouldn't foster that. Um. I well, I I'm, I'm hoping I would hope that judges don't foster that in in any particular case. Um, I recently had a case that um was moved to California, the central district of California. And the judge there immediately sent, uh, sent the case out to um, private mediation first. And I've always, I've always found that that private mediation and intellectual property are not all that strong because a lot of times private mediators tend to think of things like business, um, business solutions when I'm not really, when neither party is really looking for a business solution. Neither party is really looking to work together. But that really, to me, seems like the core of family law, like both parties have to work together. Yeah. Do you find that they, that judge did that because he was out of his depth and he was sort of like, just get it off my, my docket and here you, you just deal with this? Uh, um. Yeah, I th- I think so. Sometimes, yeah, I, I think there's certainly in my case, I've had judges who've said, I I just don't understand this case. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I would certainly think it, I would certainly hope a judge, a federal judge in Los Angeles, would understand intellectual property. I mean, if I'm if there are three three areas where intellectual property is going to be tried more than others, it's going to be Southern District of New York, Central District of California. And oddly enough, the Eastern District of Texas, where a whole bunch of patent cases get filed because there's like nothing else in that particular section of, of Texas. So they wind up with a rocket docket. As they oh, I see. Yeah. But um, other, other than that, I, I, so yeah, I have certainly seen a few judges who don't understand IP and they kind of just want it off. Um, and, they, and they order the parties either 
to the magistrate settlement conference, um, or maybe the issue is very simple. I once had a judge here in the Southern District of New York who ordered the parties to mediation, uh, excuse me, to a settlement conference by, by a magistrate judge. And um, I can tell you that the plaintiff was so angry at that, that, that all the attorneys like threw their pens down right in front of the judge after that order came. Uh, <laughs> I guess, did the judge say anything about that? Judge did not say anything about that, oddly enough. But, but basically, she, uh, she called on me, and, and I stood up, and she goes, Mr. Verna, I, uh, I, you seem like a person who'd like to, who likes to settle cases. And, of course, I'm like, well, Your Honor, that does tend to be our first calling as, as counsel on cases, I believe. And <laughs> I had filed a motion to dismiss in the case. And she's like, well, I could give you two options. Uh, you could retract the motion to dismiss. I order this to a settlement conference. And um, if it doesn't work out, you can tell me why it didn't work out. And I said, okay, Your Honor, that's one option. What's the other? And she said, I could just freeze all the dates and send it to the settlement conference. I said, I'll take option two. <laughs> <laughs> and she said sure and yeah and then and then i have a feeling she knew that probably the plaintiff wouldn't be happy with that but frankly in, in at that particular case um it wasn't a matter of of infringement or did my client infringe it was what really to be honest with you in that particular case it was damages you know my client had not sold a lot of uh versions of the um of the product that had infringed and, and, you know, it was a situation where I told my client a million times, pick up the phone and call me before you sell something new, you know, <laughs> you know, we don't need to go through a formal trademark search for everything, but at least call and we could figure things out. If you know, that's that's general advice for any client, I think. Oh yes, I know. Call I know. before the decision's made so I don't have to undo your bad one. <laughs> exactly. But in that particular case, the judge saw that, that, that we were, you know, despite the fact that we filed a motion to dismiss, that the issues in that particular case were narrow, um, and that and that it all it came down to was, um, you know, was really a number. To be honest with you, and and while the plaintiff was certainly not happy with the number that that came from the uh, that came from the settlement conference, um, you know, my my client uh, my client was happy that that it was really low for a federal trademark infringement lawsuit, it was really low. So um, litigating would have been a lot more than that. So sometimes I, I have to do that cost benefit uh, analysis. Uh, I, I had another case that was pure counterfeiting and, uh, and I had, we had to file against three or four different defendants and uh, I mean, effectively they, they were wound up being represented by one lawyer and it, that was another case where I was like, look, I, I'd be happy with the settlement conference because as far as I can tell, all it is is money, right? That, that, you know, if they're, if they're just basically giving up in the case, I'd be happy in front of a magistrate. Let's get a number and move on with our lives. So sometimes a lot of judges have been happy to say, okay, good. You understand the problem. Let's get you in front of a magistrate, get a number, get the case off the docket. Yeah, I mean, like I said, with family, you're you're really dealing with really personal, emotional things, and uh, you know, sometimes people does it surprise you that people in that situation become unreasonable because they're very angry or annoyed or hurt or whatever? And I've had, I mean, let me just tell you a story. I had a judge in one of the counties here, sort of do real politic when it basically when it comes to settling a case, or he was sort of 
he had me and the other attorney come in the back room into his chambers and he, and he said uh, to his court reporter, stop taking notes. And by the way, if either of you say anything to anybody, this conversation never happened and I'm going to see you again in another hearing, which is like a strong arm way of saying you're getting this done. Right. This is stupid. I don't know if I would have done it if I were him. Uh, I think it's a little bit, but the situation was in Pennsylvania, um, we have a variety of ways of divorcing. Um, one way is the, the traditional fault divorce, which is what most people I think think of, you know, that my spouse committed adultery or beat me up or left or whatever. Sure. And that's very traditional. But in the last 40 years or so, no fault divorce has arisen. And with no fault, there's literally, you're not claiming anyone did anything wrong. You're just saying we don't want to be married anymore. And no one has to prove anything. And there's two ways in Pennsylvania of doing a no-fault divorce. One is both the husband and the wife sign an affidavit saying they consent to divorce. Right. Um, or the other way is if you've been separated maritally, not necessarily physically in your same house, but you've not functioned as a married couple for, okay. at the time it was two years, now it's one. Um, you know, we've not been together as a married couple for two years, and, and they're based upon that length of time, we can say unilaterally, we're not really together anymore. Let's just get this over with. And of course, there's defenses to that. But the point is, is that I had a client who I inherited from another attorney who I think she had, I think I was her third attorney, which is never a good sign. But, um, <laughs> and, and she insisted that she wanted to pursue a fault-based divorce, um, of which there are literally five in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania per year, because no one does them because there's no financial benefit or anything. It's just an emotional one. But her attorney did uh, alternative pleading, which is for those who are not attorneys here, that means you do multiple counts in your complaint and you try to do the one that works at the time. And he put in uh, a, a date of separation, a two-year separation count in there as a divorce. And she was adamant on getting that withdrawn, but there's already an answer filed. The procedurally, it was that you couldn't really withdraw it anymore because the other, the other party was 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 refusing and she's collecting alimony right so, so they're like well you can't do this forever so the judge basically called us in and and that's the short story of the procedures the judge called us into his chambers said you know this is the way it's going to go down and he goes uh, here's how it's going to go down and i'm sort of mostly quoting but it's mostly some of the paraphrase he said um this is presents to me a very interesting legal argument to me so i'm going to need you to brief that and that's going to be due in 30 days and he said to the other attorney, and I need you to respond to that brief, I'll say 30 days after that. And I don't know how long it's going to take me to read these briefs and rule on it because it's very unique, sarcastically speaking, very right. unique, very uh, you know, uh, niche. So I'm, it's going to be take, I don't know how long it's going to take me to review this and come up with a ruling. But once I do, I'm going to have to schedule a hearing for oral arguments. And basically what he was doing is pushing these briefings, all this sort of fake semi-fake briefing schedules out to the point where the two years would elapse and he would just enter an order for divorce because the two years have passed. So he was like artificially creating a litigation just to get this over with that we'd have to litigate anything. Hmm. Well, and, uh, you know, my client wasn't happy with it, but, you know, it, 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 the, the truth of the matter is what she was trying to pursue didn't really have any purpose besides emotional one. You know what I mean? Yes. No, I understand. I understand completely. I mean, look, I've, I've, even in IP, I've, I've, I've been there. I, I, I once had a case where um, I filed a copyright infringement suit and then the other side countered with defamation. <laughs> you know, like, and, and it's, it's, it's a claim that was so far 
out there that it didn't make any any sense to me. Um, meanwhile, if you looked at the you know included in in my exhibits were you know my my client's original work and what was found from the defendant's uh, website, and it was even the typos were exactly the same. Okay. <laughs> same exact mistakes um, in it, not just the same thing. But, you know, the emotions between these two competitors were so high that the other side filed a defamation lawsuit and didn't want to, um, didn't want to do anything in terms of trying to settle the case because of, again, because of high emotions, um, especially when it's two competitors going after each other. So, you know, just to analogize, I, I do see that as well. But in your particular case, I thought the judge kind of um, kind of came up with a creative way of saying, I'll drag my feet until no fault is, is triggered. Yes. And um, so if you guys don't want to work it out, we'll just drag it. I'll drag it out myself. Yeah, and then get, get, get past the two-year threshold and just deal with it. You know, one, of the, one of the legal issues in that case was, um, and this is what made it interesting, is that, as I said, there's, a, there's the option to uh, – there's the option to consent to the, to the to a divorce and no fault divorce, and her prior counsel <clears throat> put in a count for consent divorce, and so but she was refusing to consent to her own divorce, but she was insisting to do fault based and and uh, there is case law that states that uh, if you re- you can't collect support spousal support against your spouse your soon to be ex spouse, while also refusing to consent to your own you can't artificially extend your litigation to collect support basically. Right, right. That the makes- judge was like, "Well, I can dismiss the whole case, <laughs> well, uh, and then it will start again, and that would dis- that would un- that would dismiss the underlying support case." Like, well, I don't, I didn't want that. Right. You know. So. Right, because she's got to maintain her lifestyle. Yeah. Or at least that's the theory behind support. Exactly right, and so uh, you know, I, you know, so then the judge is like, "Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this artificially long, is and not in so many words. <laughs> just do it myself." And I thought, "Well, that's creative." I didn't like how he went and did it. I'm like, in a sort of like, you know, there's a, uh, not to, to put a little, paint a little bow on it. There is a, uh, his, his, his chambers had, had a screen door out into the courtyard, which is in the middle of the courthouse. And he was sitting next to the screen door, smoking a cigarette at the screen door while he was talking to us. So it's very much like a shakedown in like a weird way, but you know, here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and if you don't like it, no, you can't, you know, you know, you can't say anything because I want to see you again. Just remember that. I'm like, Oh Jesus. <laughs> You, you know, meanwhile, the um, the judge that handled um, the copyright slash defamation case that I was talking about <laughs> was a former prosecutor. And it was fascinating to, um, you know, arrive at, at in court um, a little early for, um, for hearings with her and um, see the criminal cases that were going on before her because she would cut through those like 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 an, uh, like a hot knife through butter. Right. And when it came to like our intellectual property case, you know, I had written, um, I had written more than one request about trying to get the parties together for a settlement conference, because I think sometimes a good magistrate can, can take a case, wrap it in a bow and get the parties to, you know, and and crack the heads of the lawyers and, and get them to seriously talk about what the meat is and get the case done and over with and settled. Um, and, and get past that emotion because a lot of times even lawyers will inhibit the, the emotions of, of their, of their clients. And I kind of thought that's what opposing counsel was doing at that time as well. And, you know, this, this judge, she just, um, she, she kept, 
um, in my opinion, kind of flubbing over what the main issues of the, the case were. And um, she kept saying that the other side, you know, claims that it's, that none of it was original. And I'm like, I'm not talking about the concept of what the, the, the works are. I'm talking about the actual words. Like if you read the complaint, it's the words. If you look at the exhibit, it's the words. It's the actual exact words from one party to the other. And well, you say, you say you're talking about the uh, hot, hot knife through butter. I mean, I think that is one of the advantages of like a place like Philadelphia. I mean, there's, there's disadvantages of course, because of the huge backlog, but sure. But so well, where isn't there a backlog? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, but but in Philadelphia, custody trials are like a year after filing, right? So, and your whole your kid's whole life is different a year, right? So, I mean, it's, that's it's, true. It's it's bad, but but I will say that the that Philadelphia family court judges, there there is nothing they haven't seen, and so they're not impressed with like all of these sort of you know factual or legal or emotional uh, appeals that are clearly at variance with what they're seeing in front of them, right? They're, they said, I've seen this before. I'm, this is how you're going to deal with this. And, and unlike, say, for example, a smaller county judge who they don't see family court cases every single day. And, and so they do sort of get sucked into the, the, the emotionality of it all sometimes. Do, do you find that now that, now that you know, your, your father, you've got two kids, do you find that, that your own angle on this is, has changed? Uh, well, actually, yeah, I, I do. I want to say one thing before I get to that is that you mentioned right. the, the emotionality of your of the attorney. I will say that um, as a family lawyer, the, the your your clients sort of expect you to join them in their angst, and sometimes it's hard to do that, and they don't really like that um, because I might be wrong. But well, well, I do that. Look, I I tell my client, I tell a lot of potential clients all the time, especially when they they come to me and it's a trademark opposition proceeding and I say look it's it you know this is a lawsuit and it's a lawsuit only for you to register a trademark are have you like fallen in love with your trademark to the <laughs> point that you've you know that you're going to fight you know and your business is still a startup and they kind of like think about that for a second I go because because you've ruined you you have already violated my first rule which is don't fall in love you know right. <laughs> I mean I, I would say for me I mean I, I've been I've been a parent for essentially 11 years now, and when you when you're in the parenting mode, making parenting decisions every day as a person, as a human being, attorneys are human beings, I think. Um, really? As far as, as far as I can tell, maybe <laughs> um, some of us are, and um, and and so when you have parents come to you and they're stressing out over with their kid, I can sort of offer what limited wisdom I have in saying in 11 years and say, listen. This is a choice, not a decision. There's two different things. This is um, your kid's not going to for, be forever condemned to a life of mediocrity because of X, because he didn't get to this premier preschool or whatever, and and just bring not you know bring it down a notch or whatever. And and I can sort of help with that in my in what I think is why. I mean, maybe people maybe I'm making unwise decisions as a parent. I don't know, but I can at least say from personal experience, I can offer them advice myself. You know. Now, when the kids are older than me, they might say, well, do you know, you don't have teenagers yet, which might be valid too. I don't know. Well, um, no, and, 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 and hey, I, I can understand. I can understand that as well. So, so when, a judge is, when a judge kind of forces you into this settlement, settlement mode, um, I, I know that, that trying to wrap this up into a, a neat little bow is um, nigh impossible, but, but good bad, indifferent, 
how 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 do you react when it when when a judge pushes you into the settlement mode rather than trying to take this case all the way to the end through a a trial in family law? That's a good question. I think that um, I think for most people, and they don't want to admit this at the time because they're they're very you know strong feelings about the other parent. But the reality of it is, ninety percent of the time, and that's not a scientific number, but it's probably right. Um, that both parents are just normal, fairly decent people, right? I mean, they're not, obviously they're not getting along with one another. Right. And that's not the, I always tell my clients, the fact that you don't like him and the fact that he hates you is irrelevant to whether they can raise your, your son, your daughter or whatever. And, and so I, I think 90% of the time, the fact is they don't want to admit is that mom or dad are going to have time exclusive of the other parent with their son or daughter. They just are. Uh, and you need to figure out how to make that happen. You're not going to reduce this guy to, to visitation. You're not going to reduce him to supervision. You're not going to reduce him to two dinners a week. He's going to have time with his kids. And I think judges obviously going into a case assume that. That's the, that's the general assumption that most, most parents should have time with their kids. And so it, it's really just getting the, your client to admit to themselves or him or herself you know what, there's nothing you can do about this. The judge is sending you a signal. There's nothing you can do about it. And I always tell them, do you want to be in control of your life and your schedule? Or do you want some person who doesn't know you and you're just one of a thousand cases to control your, your time and your schedule? I think it's better for you to do it. And most of the time they sort of begrudgingly concede that it's probably not good for some guy, which is to say the judge, who doesn't know them and there'll be just one case out of a thousand to determine when and where they can see their kids. Maybe they should have some say in that and come to a resolution. You know what I mean? No, I, I understand that completely. It, yeah. it, it's and by the way, I'm focusing on control. custody because child support is, is kind of mathematical and straight, more or less straightforward and divorce. That's a whole other ball of wax, but it, it's you're, you're separating from somebody. And so you're less inclined to be open to settlement in that, in that regard. Because you, but even there, it's like the law is very much, you know, without with with a couple of exceptions, it's you're going to get half your stuff, and he's going to get half your stuff. So why don't you just figure out what half he's going to get? You know what I mean? Rather than having some judge do it for you. No, I understand exactly what you mean. And and not that long ago, there was a um, there was a case that went up to the appellate division in in New York. It's you you file in Supreme Court. I still don't yeah. know why that. Yeah, you file in Supreme Court, Court of Appeals, then the or excuse me, appellate division, then Court of Appeals is is Supreme Court everywhere else. So there's a case that went up to the to the Court of Appeals, and it's like, what are you guys doing, spending all of this money on on legal fees when you could just figure a way to split that money yes. and keep that money. Well, the thing about family too, uh, with custody at least and support is that it's always modifiable. By agreement. Or do you mean by agreement or by judge? Either one. Right. And so for example, if I litigate a custody case and I, I have a trial today or whatever, and I, and the judge enters a verdict, you know, if, if a month from now, this isn't working out, you just request a modification and you sort of, work through that. So it's, it's so when these, cause there are people who take these appeals up to the Supreme court, which is the real Supreme court in Pennsylvania <laughs> and um, not the first level. And it's just, I always wonder like, why are you doing this? I mean, you just file for modification again and just, and sort of figure it out and tell the judge, Hey, we tried this. It didn't work. Here's why. And let's, let's read, let's modify. 
and so I, it, so I, I don't understand the need to appeal, but some people are very much about that. I, I mean, I have a friend who's a paralegal and um, once in a while his uh, ex-wife will ask for modification. And she's, she of course shows up with counsel and he, he goes by himself because obviously he's got enough experience to, to handle this himself. And he basically says, well, your honor, she offered this. I offered, I offered that she rejected it. We're here. And, and, you know, the judge always kind of gets angry that whenever they're, they're in front of a judge for the mod, for the modification, because there's all, you know, he always makes sure to, to, to try to counter offer and try to get somewhere, you know, in between. Well, you know, and uh, family court is very unique, I think, in that depending on the jurisdiction, but I think a national average, 75% of the people in family court are pro se. Yes, I can imagine that. It's approaching 90. Um, and so the process is user-friendly because it's very, it's equity-based, right? It's not a legal court. It's an equitable court. I don't know if you can explain to your listeners what that means, but <laughs> well, I, I, I <laughs> well, I would say that that um, when you're dealing with with yes, a court in equity or an equitable court, it's there to right make divisions so that both parties are are at least have some kind of you know equity or or are equitable when leaving. Whereas with the legal court, it's yes, we're finding for the plaintiff. And that means there are damages that, that the defendant owes or the plaintiff was completely wrong and, and no damages. Yeah, I'm not saying this. I do make legal arguments, but a lot of it is equitable based. And, sure. so, and, and so individual pressing litigants can do that sometimes too. And, and so, you know, and judges therefore, and I think that it makes family court sound kind of unique is that judges are sort of forced to try to work with people who just don't know the law very well, but they know it's fair. You know, they have feelings of fairness, and the judges try to address that. So, so to try to wrap a neat bow, a neat bow into this, um, when a client comes to you and and you're and you're talking about custody, you're talking about support. Is the client going to be prepared for the judge to use his or her uh, strong arm to get the parties to keep talking? Well, in my my approach is. And maybe this is, I mean, this is just me. I, I assume it's okay. Um, I, I tell people, listen, like I said a minute ago, um, with, with the, with the, with there's are, there are always exceptions to the rule, obviously, but I say to the most, most of my clients, listen, dad or mom, they're going to have custody of your kids or this person is going to receive support from you or you're going to have to sub, uh, split your property in this approximate proportion. So, you know, that's the legal reality when you walk into the courtroom. So if you have anticipation of walking in saying, you know, dad should never see his kid again, you're going to have to provide a good, really good reason. And you don't have that. So let's try to deal with reality. And so, and the judge is not going to put up with that. So you might as well come to the courthouse with, you know, a reasonable expectation of, of, of what your course, what your case is going to wind up with, you know, cause it's not like civil court where you, you know, you, if you can't settle, you go, you, you go for you go for the you go for the moon and you get whatever's before that and in family court it's you know it, it is what it is your your dad's going to see his kids and you're going to have to give 50 percent of your stuff up so you gotta it's up to you or this judge to do it i'd rather it be me understood jim uh tell everybody how to find you thanks anthony um you can find me at the uh at fayrevacohen.com which is uh f-a-y-e this is evans and frank a-y-e R-I-V as in Victor, A, Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, com. 
I am at uh, 2047 Locust Street in Philadelphia, and you can reach me by telephone at 215-563-7776 or by email at jwc at bayrevacohen.com. Jim, thank you for uh, for this half hour of, of, of kibitzing, <laughs> war stories, and comparing and contrasting. Thanks, Anthony. I really appreciate it. Hey, not a problem. Can't wait to come back. Uh, we'll, we'll do it again soon. We won't make it such a long break. Great. This has been the Law and Business Podcast. Visit VernaLaw.com for more episodes. To contact Verna Law PC, send an email to Anthony at VernaLaw.com or call 914-358-6401.